friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 20 of the MC Lars podcast. It is Monday, January 14th, which means what? It means that the first month is halfway over of 2019. It's almost 2020. No, I'm playing. But um, I've got so much excitement happening on the podcast today, and I've got some exciting podcasts Coming up this weekend, I was in Philadelphia hanging out with some of my musical friends doing some podcasts. I hung out with Joe and uh, Rodney from The Dead Milkman. I interviewed both of them, so I'm going to do a two-part series on The Dead Milkman. And I had bagels with Adam from Adam and His Package, one of my number one influences, and I interviewed him. And we got some great and fantastic material. So that means that... The podcast is popping. I've got like 20 on deck of future interviews I've done in the past. So every Monday, just keep listening. Thank you very much for listening. I've been uh, having a good year so far. I've been reading Infinite Jess by David Foster Wallace, and I want to do some Patreon songs about this complex, important, strange book that I got into David Foster Wallace because years ago, a friend of mine from college, uh, he told me about his book, Signifying Rappers, which was like essays about Boston rap in the 80s that Dave, that Foster Wallace wrote before he started his graduate thesis. And so I read that book and I had my ears open to this guy. And then I never heard about this book till like years later, Infinite Jest. I, I started reading it like last year, but it was very complicated. So I'm reading it now. I'm reading it with a book called Elegant Complexity, which is uh, kind of a summary of it that helps you stay on track. So you'll hear more about that. But yes, I'm on the Infinite Jest tip. And you'll hear some songs about that book. This week, we've got Marcelo Vignali. And this dude is incredible. He is, well, I interviewed him because, you know, I'm, I'm a big Roger Rabbit fan. And he was the lead designer on the Who Framed Roger Rabbit ride at Disneyland and Tokyo, Tokyo Disney. And he did some of the voices on the characters. And he's just an incredible guy. But his filmography, his IMDb page, is off the charts. He worked, of course, on uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. He worked on Transylvania, Surf's Up, Atlantis. It goes on and on. Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. It's just, like, incredible. And he's interesting because he worked in cell animation at Disney. Then he started working in CGI, and he works at Sony now, Sony Animation. So we did the interview at Sony Animation Studios. He gave me a tour of the place, and he took me on a tour all around Culver City and showed me all these historical movie sites. So we had dinner. It was just crazy, like, how nice this dude was. And you can see how his art, he has a spiritual approach. And it was really cool talking to him about the Roger Rabbit ride, which is amazing. And I was at Disneyland, like, a few days after that with my family. And I got up early, and I went to the park by myself. And I rode the road, like, I rode the ride, like, four or five times by myself. There was no line. The people working there were like, you must really like this ride, and I knew it was time to go, so that's what's up. Uh, I want to give a shout-out to Patreon supporters, of course, new ones. James McLaughlin, Kenna, and John, thank you all for signing up. And some of my old supporters, Laura, Philip, and Kelly, thank you. You keep me moving. You keep this podcast alive. Oh, I've been doing a – every week I have a, a schedule. So this is the Lars uh, – uh, production schedule for what's happening when I'm not on tour because I want to keep you guys informed and entertained and give you all that flavor. So Monday, you already know the podcast drops. Tuesday, that's when I put out a puppet parody video. And I, that's a new series I started where I take a popular song or an older song, rewrite the lyrics and re-record it and sync it with a puppy, with a puppy. <laughs> That'd be funny. A puppy parody. No, a puppet. So every Tuesday on YouTube, those are coming. I did uh, Skittle Mode by this week, a parody of Sicko Mode by Travis Scott last week, I mean. Tomorrow, I did Cardi B's song, 
money, and I called it honey because honey's delicious. So every Tuesday, those are going to come out. Every Wednesday, I'm putting out a new 27th Street. There's a hashtag on Twitter, right? Wednesday Wisdom. I don't know if 27th Street gives you much wisdom. You can look at the archive at MCLars. No, sorry. The archive is on my Tumblr, but you can get there by going to comics.mclars.com. Yeah, comics.mclars.com takes you to the Tumblr. And I started this strip in 2002. And yes, there are times when like it was intermittently being done, but there are hundreds of them on there and you can read them. Some of them don't make sense. I have little descriptions on like some of the inside joke Stanford ones, but I've had a blast doing the 27 streets. Thursday, I'm on Twitch and I'm going to be doing retro games this year. I was doing Switch games and like I did Sonic the Hedgehog last Thursday. And while I love that game, like it's a, you know, I guess that is kind of like an old school one. I'm going to be doing the old classic NES, Super NES, Game Boy games Thursday for two hours, usually from one to three Eastern Standard Time. If you go to twitch.tv slash mclards, it says it. And then Friday, Freestyle Fridays. So that was a huge success uh, last week. I figured out a way to hook up my sound system, my DSLR camera, do a green screen. It's just been really freaking fun. So Freestyle Fridays. So that's what's up. And we're going to keep it moving. Going to the UK with Ruled by Raptors, Mega Ran, and Cuckoo Kangaroo this spring. NerdcoreTour.com for tour dates. Doing a US tour this spring too. Can't announce it yet, but stay tuned. And in the meantime, check out my amazing interview with the legendary Marcelo Vignali. Oh, yes. Before we get into that, afterward, after the interview, I play uh, my Benny the Cab song, Hop In, I'm Benny the Cab, which came out like two years ago on Patreon as a demo, a rough mix. Then last summer, we re-recorded it and remastered it and tweaked it and put it on the uh, Notes from Toontown EP as the final track. So this is the version from Notes from Toontown. If you sign up on Patreon, you can get the unmastered older demo version, like you can get some of the rarer stuff. And because Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin, you're in a runaway, runaway taxi, it's kind of like appropriate, right? So Benny the Cab. You hear about why all the taxis are called Lenny in, in this interview. Usually they're supposed to be different names, but something got messed up, so they're all called Lenny. So that's what's up. Okay, thank you for listening. I'm MC Lars. Here's my new friend, my inspirational homie, Marcelo Vignali. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the MC Lars Podcast. We have a really cool, interesting, unique guest this week, and uh, we'll just jump right into it. Marcelo Vignali, um, born in Baltimore. It's funny, my my name sort of has this roundabout way of actually, you know, coming into fruition. My mother, when she was about 15 years old, had two other best friends, and they're living in Argentina. This, we're going way back, the 1950s. And their Leonardo DiCaprio, their heartthrob back then, was an actor by the name of Marcello Mastroianni. And they made a pact between the three of them that if they had a boy, they would name their son Marcello after the actor. Well, my mom moved away. She moved to the United States. This is 1961. And she never heard from those friends because back then you didn't have Facebook and things like that. And then as you're growing up and you're moving and things like that, first she started with, you know, kept in contact with letters, but then all of that sort of goes away. So she lost complete contact with these women. Hmm. Well, it wasn't till now, till Facebook came about and she got on Facebook and one connection turned into another connection, turned into another connection. She reconnected with those friends again. And all three of them 
all got married, all had families, all became widows. And all three named one of their sons Marcello. (laughs) So I, I, uh, am one of three, I guess. <laughs> have you have you been in touch with any of the other sons? Just one of one of the other sons. They all made good on their pact. <laughs> That's right. They all made good on their pact. So there it is. I saw you posted um you went to see uh in, into the Spider-Verse with your mom, right? Yes. And she's so proud of you. I bet. Oh my gosh, she is yeah. so proud of me. And she has been she's been proud of me really my whole life. Both my brother and I. She's always been one of these moms that's been incredibly supportive. And sometimes you don't think that it's those little things that are going to make the difference. I'm, I'm sure there's, you know, people probably even listening to this podcast, you know, they, they would downplay the significance of some of the smaller things that they do. Oh, it's not going to matter. Oh, kids won't remember it. They do remember it. And I remember getting this box of 64 crayons. You know, we didn't have much money back then. We're, you know, immigrants that came to the United States really with nothing. And I remember having that box of 64 crayons. It was usually like the 12 crayons. That's all we had. Mm. But then one day I got, I think it was for Christmas, was the box of 64 crayons. I couldn't believe my eyes. And the very next year, I got another box of 64 crayons. (laughs) And that was the kind of love and support that I used to get from my mom. Mom really believed in us. She always supported us. If I did something, she knew I was proud of it. It went up on the refrigerator. Mm. It was a big deal. And I I think it's that kind of uh, involvement and support that makes a difference in people's lives. I know for myself that... When you think of, you know, how does, how does somebody believe in themselves? You know, as a little kid, there has to be that moment where you believe in yourself. And I think that those moments come from things like that, where, you know, you have somebody else that believes in you, somebody else that says, yes, you can do it, really does make all the difference in the world. And she recognized that talent in you at a young age. You must have been drawing constantly. I bet. Well, the thing is, my brother was an artist, yeah. and I just wanted to be just like him. <laughs> so he was really good. Well, here's the thing is, my mom, I guess I come from a very creative family because my mom was a seamstress, and she used to make dresses, and she would make clothing. She made all our clothing when we were kids, and she would sit there, just lay material out. She'd just start cutting, sewing it, and there, you had a shirt, <laughs> you had pants, you had whatever it was that she was making. She would make these things. Cool. But she just had this idea about what she wanted. She would make the patterns and everything. My, my dad was a bricklayer. And so he would get these ideas and he would take a pencil and he would just kind of sketch out. It wasn't like a three-dimensional beautiful drawing, but he would sketch out the design of what he wanted and then he would build it. And he could do those things. He could, he made all kinds of, made this giant bird house. It's an an entire aviary in part of the house. It was crazy. We had like all these (laughs) wild birds flying around. It's incredible. That's cool. So that's the kind of stuff that he would do. And so I never thought anything of it that my brother was drawing. I thought like, well, yeah, I guess this is just something that everybody does. And I didn't think about it being something particularly unique or special, but I knew I wanted to be like my brother. Yeah. Did he end up going to arts also? No, he didn't. It was a, a curious thing because we were always drawing together. And I remember, imagine how young I was, but he started school when he was five and I'm two years younger. So that would make me three. Well, I remember that he used to go uh, from, I guess, like eight o'clock or something. Yeah, it was probably eight o'clock to noon. 
So I would take the chair. I would ask my mom, is it almost time? Is it? And she would say, yes, it's, he's, it's almost time. So I would take the chair and push it to the wall, climb. I remember all of this. And I would <laughs> climb on the chair and hold on to the back of the chair and look out the window and wait for him to come back. And I was so desperate. As soon as he would come in, I would ask him, do you want to draw? <laughs> and then we would yeah. sit down and we would draw. And, and that yeah. was it. And so later on, this is probably, oh, we would make books together and all kinds of things. We're always something creative. We would, we'd make our own toys. He was really good with the, it was, a, a, like an, it was called an erector set. Mm. And you could make things out of metal and screws and stuff. And he would make all kinds of things. And we would make our toys and make characters and things like that. And I'd make posters and books. We always made books, little storytelling books. But at a certain point, I started getting very, very good, and I started to su surpass his his level. And I think that as kids, uh, especially siblings, you're always looking for an identity. Mm. And he realized that his identity, or that was my identity, and so he went off into electronics. And so oh. today he works in robotics. Wow! Yeah. Wow! Yeah. So he be, he used his creative skills. He too. did, but yeah. it was. But at one point, we were very much on the same path. But then, at, at, you know, at a certain point, people's paths diverge. When you realize, yeah, that's that's your thing. That's not my thing. My thing is this. There was something else that he wanted. A common theme, Marcelo, through this podcast is um, inspiration and the teachers that come into our life and the people who guide us and inspire us. Like there's a there's there's a reason for that. You know, there's people are put into our life, whether you can call it um, divine providence or coincidence or something to teach you something. And, you know, maybe like you, him passing on that passion to you and then all the creativity you've been able to do was like a gift to you. Do you ever think about that in oh, that way? Oh my gosh. There have been so many times that people have had that relationship for me. I, I always, always wanted to have a mentor. And I realized that as I worked in the business, I've had very few of that, that interaction. I've had a few instances where I had, you know, somebody that was perhaps about 10 years older than me kind of show me the ropes, but I really didn't have a, a really strong mentor presence, somebody that was sort of shepherd me into the industry. But that doesn't mean that I didn't have mentors and that I didn't have people that were inspiring me. One of the things, and this was one of those where it was such an eye-opening experience. I know this sounds funny because, you know, I was growing up in Baltimore, in, in Maryland. In Maryland yeah. is just, if you look at the state, it's the, the only reason the state exists is to encompass Chesapeake Bay. <laughs> I mean, the whole darn thing, right? Yeah. And the, they had this ship was coming, the shipment was coming in from Argentina. And my, somehow my family found out about it because they, they always would, well, they were buying things from Argentina, like tea and foods and stuff like that, more, more cult cultural things. Hmm. Well, the ship was coming in and they, they were going to uh, somehow, I don't know how this worked out, but they managed to get us, when the ship arrived, a tour on the ship. So we got to meet the captain and, and they took us around. And one of the little, I don't know what you would call it, uh, one of the crewmen's rooms, it was really no bigger than like a probably two times the size of a closet. And he had this, it was just enough for his bunk and a, and a desk. 
But all over his walls, he had all these drawings. Mm. And I looked and I, it was the first time I had met anyone that was a, you know, an adult that worked or, or an adult that did drawings. He, I don't know whatever happened to him. I don't even remember his name because I was probably about seven or eight years old. So I just don't remember that. And I kept this drawing for the longest time, but we moved around so much at, at some point I lost it. But we had, uh, I, I met this guy and he was so kind and he took the time to say, oh, so you're an artist too. And he was showing me all his work and he had all these cowboys riding horses. And it was, if I remember correctly, it was very much like in, in the, and this would have been like 1972. And it was probably right around the time, uh, at, like, like a Jean Girard doing Mobius or something. But it was these beautiful things. Anyway, mm. he says, oh, so you're an artist too. Here, show me what you can draw. So he gave me a sheet of paper and I sat there and I was drawing side by side with him and he was drawing cowboys and stuff. Mm. And I remember it was, that was such a wonderful moment. And that was a gift. That was a gift that I carry that with me today. That's such an inspiring moment. And every now and then I'm reminded of that. And I think, you know, am I, am I creating that moment for somebody else? And I always try to be cognizant of that because you never know when those opportunities are going to come up. You mm. have an opportunity to crush somebody or you have an opportunity to build somebody up and that, and who knows what that somebody is capable of, you know, 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, 50 years down the road, what's that person going to do? Yeah. And then here, I, you know, like I said, here I was on that ship, probably I'm guessing it was like maybe 1972, maybe 1973. And here we are all these many years later. And, you know, I've, I've been a professional artist working in the industry and, yeah. That's a beautiful story, man. You, you, one of your first drawings, your first cartoon was in the National Catholic R Register. Yeah. I read an interview where you mentioned that. Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> it's a funny thing. I, when I was going to art school, I guess I was in my sophomore year in art school, they had a bulletin board and they were looking for artists. Now, they didn't want to pay that much, so they're reaching out to the kids at school, like, hey, can you do this work? And it's like, oh, yeah, and I can you know, do a professional-level job. So I, I go down there, and I interviewed for the position to do illustrations for the Na National Catholic Register. And I got the job. Oh, that moment was electric. I remember <laughs> I was all calm, shaking hands with them. Yes, yeah, sure, yeah. We had agreed on a price and this and that, and they gave me the photographs that they needed me to draw. And it was of uh, Cardinal Ratzinger who would later on become Pope. <laughs> and I, I had to do the his uh, drawing, his portrait. And I remember I, I got into the elevator and there was nobody else in the elevator with me and the elevator doors closed. And when they closed, oh my gosh, I jumped and <laughs> pumped my fist and I couldn't believe that I, that was it. I, I was now a professional artist. Wow. And yeah. do you, did you, I bet you framed it or kept it, kept it? I still have it. I, it's not framed, yeah. but I still have that. That's that special. Drawing. Yeah. <laughs> You, um, you've done commercial illustration, TV animation, computer game art, theme park design, and you're one of the few people who was both an Imagineer uh, artist and you worked for Disney Animation, right? Yeah. That's yeah, it's cool. A, it's cool. a pretty unique distinction. Very few people. I mean, you have guys like John Hanch, Claude Coates, uh, Mark Davis. So there are a few people uh, that I think Sam McKim also... That, so there are very few people that have actually been able to do to work at both sides, both in animation and in theme park design. Mm. So I, I feel like I'm 
and it's sort of a, a distinguished uh, uh, crowd of people. A very small group of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, was there, did you prefer doing one or the other, or they're just so different? You know, and uh, sometimes people ask me, and they'll ask me, like, well, what, what's better to work on? Is it better to work in a, on a film that's uh, a blue sky when it, the sky's the limit, or working in production, or working in theme park design, or working in animation? And I think you know, each one comes with its own benefits. It comes with its own joy, and it comes with its own rewards that you don't get in the others. Okay. But that doesn't necessarily make that good or bad. It's just different. And that's why I think sometimes like when, when artists are trying to select the road and like, oh gosh, I, I don't know which is the better road to take. I've actually been down several of these roads and I can say there is no right or wrong answer. There's, you're not gonna go into theme park design and you think like, oh gosh, boy, did I make a terrible mistake with my life. No, you can actually, that can actually turn into a fantastic uh, livelihood. You can have a tremendous life. You can do amazing things. But it just depends what do you want. What do you want to do? So like, like I said, each one comes with its own sort of unique charm. I, I will tell you this. this and, and some of those moments are electric. It's like jumping in the elevator when I yeah. got that, that job for the, <laughs> for the newspaper. But the other one was I remember I was working at uh, Imagineering and working on Toontown. And I had to design the trolley, the Toontown trolley, that's going to go up and down the, the, um, the whole land. Mm. And it's a big trolley. People can stand in it, ride, and, and ride you around. Well, I, I'm the designer. I'm the creator of that. So I did, I did some designs, and I sent that away. Two weeks later, my friend Joe Lanzistro comes to me, and he, and he says, hey, do you want to go see your trolley? I'm like, what? He goes, they've got it mocked up. So what they would do is at, at Imagineering, they would build a wooden mock-up, means that somebody would spec out how big the thing was going to be, and they would build a, uh, a mock of it, mm. all made out of wood, but everything to spec, so that they would actually create molds off of this thing. Mm. And they would do all the show set drawings after the fact, because they didn't know how big or how small it needed to be. Or, or the roof, like when you were standing. I mean, these are just things that, that they were trying to work out in the mock-up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm like, yes, I want to go see it. <laughs> and it was the craziest thing. I had, it was on my desk two weeks earlier. Yeah. And here I am walking into the Maple building. It was named Maple for Mary Poppins. Okay. So I go to uh, the Maple building, and this is where they were building all this stuff. And there it was. There was the mock-up of my... Uh, of my Toontown trolley. Wow. In wood. I mean, it wasn't painted or anything like that. Yeah. It was all in you know, like woods and plywoods and things like that. And they actually had some metal work already on it just to create the structure for it. And I got inside of it. <laughs> Go on, sit down, <laughs> sit inside of it. What do you think? I was like, I can't believe it. That's so awesome. it's another one of those things. It's just electric. You, you don't, it was something, it happened so quickly. I didn't expect it. And because of that, that was really a thrilling moment. And you were young when you were working Oh my there, gosh, right? yeah. I, I finished art school in 87. Then I, I worked in animation, TV animation, uh, all the way through 1989. And in 1989, I was hired by Disney to Disney Imagineering to paint these posters. And it's, and it's one of those where sometimes, it, you know, you have, to, you have to work really hard and you have to also get lucky. Mm. 
But Arnold Schwarzenegger made the best quote about that. And he said, but you'll realize that the harder you work, the luckier you get. (laughs) And so I had in my portfolio, had all these acrylic paintings that I had done, all these acrylic illustrations. And when I went to interview there, they they were kind of like, yeah, 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 sure. And they're looking at stuff. When they got to the acrylic illustrations, it was exactly what they were looking for. Because one of their artists had painted three, I think there was, he was supposed to do a series of six posters. He painted three of them, and for whatever reason, he had moved on to a different project, and he wasn't going to come back to finish them. And he needed to get somebody to finish the posters. And there, I just happened to show up with the right work. So wow. they gave me the job, and I painted the posters for him. But that was supposed to be it, just do the posters. But I did such a good job, they offered me a full-time position there. And and that was it, and I, and I was in. But uh, Do you remember what the posters were of like yeah they were the m&m's posters because m&m's was sponsoring the star tours oh cool uh, cool. right so i painted three uh, three m&m's posters for the uh, for disney and m&m's i guess <laughs> that's pretty awesome yeah. um do you ever have a moment where you will go and like for instance going to Dis- disneyland and seeing those posters and for a second forgetting that like you created it because it's seamlessly part of this universe you know what i mean or like seeing your work and it's so good that it's hard to recognize do you know what i mean for a second you're like oh i painted that no yeah (laughs) no i don't see that at all you know it's it's unfortunate but uh when you work on a project a lot of times all you see are the flaws only I I am so critical and, and the thing is and this is actually a good thing because if if I wasn't critical with my work I wouldn't demand so much of myself but at the same time if you're really critical of your work you can't stand to have it around you and so I I can't have any of my artwork in my house I I look at it and there are parts of it I just keep looking because my I don't stop drawing it when I stop drawing it. Right. Two years later, I look at it, and I'm still drawing it in my mind, and I still want to fix things and change things. And yeah, and those, those things just stay in your head. They just, they don't leave. That's kind of the, the benefit and the beauty of a collaboration, right? Like having someone manifest the Toontown trolley from your art. Well, I, I guess it's done, yes. right? Someone converted it to this. Yeah, and yeah. you know, and that's a... That's a a really true thing because I'm not critical of other artists. Yeah, I really enjoy art. I really enjoy what other artists do. But for myself, I know that the because you go into that process, you really go into a drawing or you go into a painting, and and it's so complex that your mind engages in it completely. And you, uh, in order for you to complete that, and that process doesn't stop when the artwork is done. Mm. And I guess. If it did, then you might not be spurred to make more art and increase your skills and become better. Like if you're like, oh, it's a perfect painting, you know, I'm done, right? It makes you want to do better next time. And that's right. And and that's the thing. That's the the muse of art. You know, like when people talk about, oh, the artist and his muse, and usually people reference that, you know, this beautiful woman that is his, you know, the artist's muse. But the art muse is the the elusiveness of, uh, of beauty. Mm. You're trying to create your art, and you, you know, that's the uh, you know, that's that search for beauty, that search, and it, and it can be whatever it is that somebody's looking for. It doesn't have to be in a, in a human figure or anything. Somebody's painting, like Monet was trying to paint these 
these wonderful uh, cloud-like forms, and he could find them in all different things. And when you look at the, the way light was changing, that was beauty. And that was his muse. It was the, the way light would change from just, you know, five minutes, you would get a different light source. And that's where he painted the cathedral. And he, every 15 minutes, he would change out the painting. <laughs> and he would keep going just so yeah. that he would always paint them at the same time to try and catch that light. That was his wow. muse. Yeah. And so different artists have that muse and it's so elusive. And you spend your whole lifetime, your whole career going after that. If you ever catch it, it would die. Mm. Because you know, you you've satiated that part of you. So it has to be elusive. It has to always be out of your grasp. And and a lot of young people struggle because uh, I I think as artists, we really beat ourselves up. You know, we we question ourselves, we question whether or not we made the right decision or went into the right career and, and whether or not that drawing is good enough or, or whatever. And we really torture ourselves as a result of that. But I made peace with that and I reconciled it because if I didn't have that, that's my muse. If I didn't have that, I wouldn't push myself uh. to do better. I wouldn't push myself to excel. I've seen people where they plateau in their career because they get very good, they get very confident, and, and that's it, and then it's done. And you can see that they, they lose that spark, they lose that spark, they lose that interest. And that's, that's almost like an early death for an artist for that reason, that it just, they just lose the energy, their, their artwork loses that vitality because they've become comfortable and confident. So mm. as an artist, you have to walk this fine line of insecurity and confidence. Mm. <laughs> if, if you have too much confidence, you kill your art and, and you don't push yourself to excel. Right. If you have too much insecurity, you kill yourself. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know, you become suicidal mm. because you, you're so filled with dread and doubt and, and you torture yourself. And so you, you, as an artist, and it isn't that you just straddle that line and stay on it. No, as an artist, you're constantly teetering from one side to the other. At one point, you, you are filled with self-doubt. And other points, you're filled with confidence. And then you're going back and forth and back and forth. And it sounds crazy that you would say like, oh, well, Marcelo's very accomplished. He has all of, you know, this, all of these credits under his belt and he's been working as a professional for so many years that he, he would be confident about what he can do. And I tell you the truth that I continue to teeter back and forth between that. You know, there's mm. between uh, confidence and insecurity constantly. I've been doing it my whole career. But, huh. but I've made peace with that because yeah, I realize yeah. that that is the process. And if I lose that, then, then I'll actually lose why I love doing it. That's beautiful explanation. And that kind of gives me a deep understanding. And I think the listeners will appreciate that, that imagery too. And, you know, a lot of the literary romantics talk about the idea of the sublime, right? Something that's so inspirational, like a, like a, a sunset or looking at the Grand Canyon, that it transcends your senses, right? And there's that poem, um, John Keats, The Ode on a Grecian Urn, where the coda is, beauty is truth and truth is beauty. And he describes this urn that, ha that has this, this Greek scene and how it's kept these characters alive through time, through, through eternity. And that there's truth in, in that because it's, it's documenting this important moment and, and the poem kind of celebrates the artist. And it's really a special poem. And I think, I wonder if you think about this in terms of your legacy in a thousand years, 
in 5,000 years, people seeing your work and your signature and being like, oh, this guy really had an impressive career because there's something about art that lasts forever in a way. Do you ever think about that or no? Yeah, you know, it, uh, you know getting into the, the philosophy of art, when yeah. I was in art school, uh, I came across the, for me, what was sort of the quintessential role of an artist. And it was actually penned by Charles Baudelaire. He was a uh, French uh, poet. And, and he wrote that, he was actually talking about Emile Zola. And in describing it, he, he said that the role of an artist is to extract the eternal from what is transitory. And I've never forgotten that. It's great. And when you think about, well, what is it? What is the role of an artist? And an artist, that is the, the quintessential role of an artist, is to be able to look at something that everybody else sees as mundane and find what is eternal about that. And if you can do that, if you can extract from whatever is, is contemporary and pull out this, this beauty, this truth, from that and say, this is eternal. If you can do that, you've done your job as an artist. Mm. And that's when things last. It doesn't matter. And I, I really love that when you think of like a Shakespeare. Shakespeare wrote the King Lear. Then the Akira Kurosawa, the director, takes it and he adapts it and he makes the movie Ron. So this Shakespeare writes it in the 1400s. Then you've got, you've got the, um, Akira Kurosawa who makes this movie in the 20th century, mm. and he makes it at about, and the movie takes place in feudal Japan. Mm. But despite it bouncing all over all these different genres, it is such an eternal truth that Shakespeare was able to write that it doesn't matter. You could still, you could make that movie another hundred years from now, and it would still work. Right. And that's when you realize that what he had done in writing that story that he had extracted what was eternal from what it's transitory. So it doesn't matter if it's set in the medieval age, the Renaissance. Or in space uh, in the future. Or in space or in feudal Japan. It doesn't matter because he's talking about a human condition that is so eternal that that's what he managed to do. He he managed to grab that, that, that truth. And then he's and he's sharing that truth with uh, with us. That's awesome. I do a lot of work with um, kids and and hip hop workshops. And one of the things I do is take old poems and stories and turn them into educational rap songs and videos. And I actually did King Lear. So as oh, one wow. of the songs. So it's kind of cool to, that you mentioned that and thinking about um, this idea of transmedia, right? Like stories that go from Shakespeare to to the movie or to a song or to to a poem. Like the idea that certain things once they're extrapolated, because they're timeless, have kind of their own agency, right? And that's that's like an interesting concept, you know, like art being able to. And I, I mentioned this because the connection between Imagineering and animation, um, it's all about distilling one idea and then trans, translating it, right? Finding the essence. For instance, like Roger Rabbit was kind of like a movie that was brought in the the second golden age of animation in a way, right? It kind of heralded that in. And you made a you designed a ride that was you took the essence of the movie and you translated it into this story that kind of exists without having ever needing to have seen the movie because it's timeless. Yeah, and and that was a thing is the 
that was a great opportunity. That really was. Uh, when I think about something like that having landed in my lap at my at, at the young age that I was, I just got to Disney. So it was in '89 I got to Disney. By 1990, they had dropped. I think it was a forty. I think it was a forty million dollar ride, forty million dollars on my shoulders. <laughs> it's like here. Does that now? It wasn't like they stuffed it in my pockets, right? <laughs> no, yeah, that would have been great. <laughs> I would have retired. No, but what I. But what they did is they trusted me and said, "This we want this ride. We're going to build this ride for forty million dollars. We want you to design what that's going to be." And, and that was it. And I'm like, wow, this is fantastic. And I knew I couldn't, because people weren't going to see the movie. They weren't going to see, because I, I realized, even back then, I realized that that movie existed in a place and time, and it told a particular story. If I stuck to that story, then audiences that came in the future to see it would be confused because they they weren't familiar with the story sure so what i had to do is i had i, I said no what uh, uh what wolf did was created a a world i'm going to take you into that world and so i tried to from that i tried to extrapolate what was the truth about that world mm. and then share that and that's what we thought like okay people are a lot more familiar with the cartoon world than they are with that specific movie. Yeah. So what is it that we can do in this world? And so there were certain things that that we we tried to come up with. Okay, what do you want to do in a cartoon world? Well, I want to do this, I want to do that. And then one of those, uh, we, we knew that we had to stick with the framework that the movie created, but then also create experiences that weren't necessarily specific to that movie. And one of those was, I remember I said, I want to get blown up. Well, yeah. how are we going to do that? And, <laughs> and that's what we did. So that's when, uh, when you go into the giant machine that swallows you and Roger hits that button, he gets electrocuted, the whole thing blows up. And then we have smoke and, you know, and then these giant swirls and we go through the swirls. And when everything opens up, we're actually falling back down to earth. Yeah. You know, so we've just suffered this concussion. We've lost track of several seconds. Next thing, when, as we're coming to, we're falling to earth. <laughs> yeah. So that, and that yeah. was a lot of fun. So that, that's the kind of thing is that that's not in the movie, but mm. we knew that it would be an essential part of an experience of what it is to be attuned. That directing, almost like creating a comic book or creating a, a whole interactive experience, imagination, sky was the limit, right? In that example, quite literally, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. exactly. And one of the things that we found, like in a, a story can be linear and a ride can be linear, but more than linear, it has to be kinetic. You have to feel as though, you know, like you have those little marbles and one hits the other and the other one moves. Yeah. That, that's how it has to be. It has to create this kinetic energy where one thing affects this other element and that other element affects something else. And then it creates this chain that you can follow. It's a visual chain that you can follow. Yeah. And you can't rely on dialogue to do that. Right. And that's why we knew that the ride had to be different than, than just retelling the story of the movie. You did. You voiced some of the characters, like you voiced I the gorilla. Did. Right? I did. I voiced yeah. the gorilla. You and, know, it's funny because yeah. they modify my voice. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's like, what's the secret password? You know, <laughs> and then they they lowered it a little bit more, and it sounds like the gorilla. Yeah. Um, what's the story with the the cabs? They all say Lenny, right? Are yeah. they supposed to be Benny, Benny's brother or something? Yeah. Well, that was it. He's a they're. 
when we were designing the ride, this is kind of a, a funny way that whole thing came about. Yeah. When we were designing the ride, we, I had this idea that all the cabs would have different names. It would be Kenny, there would be Lenny, and there would be Jenny, <laughs> all of these different cabs. We, but I, I had to do a show set drawing, and the show set drawing is a drawing that is then sent to the the people that there were outside vendors that were going to be making the fiberglass mold for mm. it. I did the actual drawings for that because wanted to make sure that they stayed on model. Made the whole package and then that went out. Well, it, there was a goof up to a certain extent and it, it it's sort of a, a, a chain of things that happened. So from that, they so they sent it to the vendor. The vendor didn't just build the mold, but they also took it to paint. And at that point, they didn't get the updated version, oh. which was that we, they were going to have different license plates. And they all came back as Lenny. <laughs> now, the it could easily have been remedied. They could easily be like, oh, yeah, we'll just put different names on it and you know, you make a sticker sheet. Sure. Then it would have a different name. You cut it out and boom, you put it on. But Joe Lanzisro, who was the art director for the whole land, he just thought that it was a very funny idea. And he said, well, let's keep it. And so that's why they're all Lenny. That they're all, they're all the same cab or they're clones, right? Yeah. Or, or I don't know. They're just a sort of like, hey, my, here's my cousin Lenny. Yeah. And my other cousin Lenny and my brother Lenny and you know, that kind of a thing. So he saw that and he saw, that's, that's funny. Let's keep it. It's the, it's the one ride at Disneyland that is like, has a very good sense of humor throughout like the bull in the china shop like yeah. the, it's a yeah it's, i i'm actually the voice of the bull in the china shop awesome. as well <laughs> and there's a, i'll give you a sampling of my my uh my acting abilities that was it that was <laughs> and they, they recorded that and that's my moo <laughs> that's my claim to fame right there that's very good now now when i go i'll think about that I'll yeah. think about you doing that um and marcelo there was Talk that it was supposed to be a, there was going to be a second. Uh, it was going to be like a two level ride, right? Yeah, I, I know you've spoken about this. You know, that's oh my gosh, that was that was a dark, dark period on mm. on that ride. When sometimes you always think of that's why I said sometimes when you're, I'm looking at my artwork, I think of what could have been, not necessarily what is. And that was one of those where, you know, we had a particular idea about what that ride was going to be like. So it was, it was going to be a two-tiered system or, or a, a double-decker, two floors. We we're going to be moving around the bottom, then we we're going to go upstairs, and then we we're going to go through the upstairs, break out at some point. And there was like a, there was a big balcony, and everyone would be able to see the cab spinning going across from one thing to another. So when you come into the land, there's something kinetic up there. And you're looking, you're like, oh my gosh, look, there's people up on that balcony spinning. Let's go ride that ride. Okay. So that was the idea. Great. I mean, it was a fantastic idea to do that. If, if you think about it, it was the same thing that you have in Alice in Wonderland. You see the, the caterpillar pops out for a short while and then ducks back into the ride. People see that and it, it attracts attention. So we thought, okay, that's what we were, we're going to have. So I, we designed the whole ride and everything. We had all the floors laid out. We did all the CAD drawings, and the CAD is the, the computer-aided drawings. Mm. And so we had all of that stuff worked out. I had, we, we were building the, uh, the model, doing all the show set stuff. Really kind of far along in that process, we went to a meeting, and one of the, the gentlemen that was doing the development for the ride system 
it just he told us he said I can't I, we can't do it the ride vehicle that we have isn't strong enough to pull us up that uh, hill and so that they would have to come up with a different system to get us all the way up the hill hmm. and the and I, I think there was another problem which was in order to do that you needed a because it was a bus bar system in order to do that you needed a three-wheeled vehicle to do it three wheels why because uh, if you have four wheels when you come up to a bump let's say it's turning it's going to go up a hill mm -hmm. it one of the wheels will be off the ground and you can't have that right okay so it has to have three wheels so they're always making contact and they and they couldn't deliver that so they had told us one thing but when we started getting into the nitty-gritty they would not be able to deliver that and i remember that joe lances the, the the director of the land he just had this sort of, you know, all the blood had drained from his face. <laughs> he looked really pale. Mm. And it was one of those, like, I remember talking to him. He's like, what do we do? You know, what, uh, you, know I, you know, do we, and I, I kind of assumed that we would try and get a, a different system that we get. It's like, no, no, that's not going to happen. We have to make it a one floor system. Whole ride has got to be on the lower floor. And it was one of those where, okay, all right, well, uh, now we have to be much more economical about our use of space. I did a whole drawing of the, of the layout. I worked it all out really tight, everything. All the space is really, really well utilized. And I think in the long run, we had only, because a large part of that ride was actually eaten up by the ramp going up and the ramp going down, ah. that we only ended up losing just, you know, like maybe a, you know, several feet or something like another 50 feet of ride. It's all we lost because I had made such an economical model of, of that. We built a CAD system. It fit. Mm. We, the the mm. CAD system actually would work within it. I'm like, oh my gosh, we did it. We actually pulled it off. And I think, it's just a funny thing, is sometimes you think it, it's, oh, it's adversity. Oh, it's going to be a lesser ride. I think it's a better ride than the ride we had uh, originally with that was a two uh, a two floor ride with the exception is that i really wish that we would have been able to pop out yeah but uh, uh, but aside from that I, I it was it was a better layout it was a better track than, than the one that we had before and you had a unique um challenge because being able to spin 360 degrees you had to make sure everywhere the audience looked, they, there's something going on as opposed to Haunted Mansion, which is like the camera is static, right? Yeah, in Haunted Mansion, is, I mean, they have a fantastic ride system, which yeah. is the uh, the Omnimover. And it, it indexes you where, what you want to see. So it can re re reveal things. It can turn and, and reveal something to you, which is really exciting. It, it's very cinematic. We did not have that. Mm. Now, that we could turn it any which way. So we had to create a three-dimensional ride experience. We had to create environments that if somebody's spinning, that they, they wouldn't miss the story. And it's still that they would be in a really fun environment. That was it. And so hmm. another thing that we had done, which was, and this is uh, Ann Militello, I think her name was, we're going back several years, but she was one of the top lighting people in theater. Uh, doing fantastic work and she came to work with us and she helped us with our lighting and that's when I learned the, the importance of being able to to use light as a means by which to direct people's attention mm. and she did a fantastic job in lighting our show uh, I, I think that that 
that really was sort of uh, our cinematic tool that we were using to make sure people were looking at the right things. Was that the intention originally to make it a black light ride or did she? Yeah. 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 Cool. Black light. That's cool, man. So when opening day, it must have been exciting as heck, right? To, to, to go there and were you, I'm sure you were there and one of the first people to ride it, right? <laughs> yeah. I wasn't one of the first people yeah. to ride it. Uh, but I remember that when I went there, I went to the ride and I rode through the ride and there it was. It was because <laughs> I went through several times when we were building it. Yeah. You know, seeing the figures and everything and walking through, but to actually get on the ride and ride it. And I rode it and I got off and I just sat there at the at the end of the ride watching people coming off, just looking at the expressions on their faces. And that was it. And we start thinking about the kind of gift that you can give. That was that was my gift. Mm. And I was watching them wearing it on, on their faces. <laughs> That's I, awesome. I, I was really moved. That's awesome, yeah. man. Um, since then, you've moved on and you've done so many other things. Did you, after Disney, is that when you went to Sony? Or? No. Well, yes. Yeah. So from, from Disney Imagineering, I ended up going to Disney Feature. So when I went to Disney Feature, I worked on Mulan. Then I left the studios and I left California and I continued working as a freelancer. I did, at that point, I started, I continued doing development for, for the films. I worked on Kingdom of the Sun, which later became Emperor's New Groove. Mm. I worked on Atlantis. I worked on Home on the Range. What was some of the other ones? Oh, and uh, Brother Bear, Lilo mm. and Stitch. And I worked on the 2D version of Frozen when it was called The Snow Queen. Really? Yeah, That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was it was it going to be cell animation then? It was going to be cell animation way back. Well, it, it was back then they weren't using cell. I think yeah. the last one they did cells was um, Little Mermaid. Mm. But it was going to be 2D, so mm. it was going to be all animated all by hand. Wow. But at that point, the, the studio was in a transition. Uh, the industry was in transi transition. And, and 2D animation simply went by the wayside. Wow. And the last 2D animation movie was, wasn't it Winnie the Pooh was one of Disney's last ones after the Frog Princess? I'm, the, I might be wrong, but... I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. They, yeah, the Frog Princess came out and then, and then you had Winnie the Pooh, but I didn't work on either one of those. Do you think that um, 2D animation will ever come back as like in retro vogue? I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Here's here's my theory on why 2D animation collapsed. That I, I think 2D animation has a vitality that CG animation does not have. Mm. And there's a joy and a charm that and a strength that CG animation can never do. And CG animation has the ability to create things that 2D animation cannot do. So they're different things. But the more 2D animation pretended to be CG, the more it made itself irrelevant. So when you think of, let's say, Beauty and the Beast, and there's that, that beautiful ballroom, hmm. and the ballroom starts spinning, that was sort of the beginning where Disney was very focused on trying to make a very 3D world. Well, actually, it was before that, and this is with um, the... Great Mouse Detective mm. with uh, Radigan climbing up the gears. Then they built that room uh, 
for Beauty and the Beast. And then later on in Mulan, they had all, or in Lion King, they had all of the antelope running. And so little by little, they, they started creating things that the computer allowed them to create. And it just makes sense that, yes, that's what you want to create. You want to, you want to use that uh, to create things, to push the 2D medium. But at a certain point, they kept trying to make things more and more 3D and more realistic. That at a certain point, 3D could do it better. CG animation could do that better. And that's when 2D animation became irrelevant. Mm. I think 2D animation is at its best and it, it's at its most relevant when it is not 3D. When you think of something like the in Aladdin, mm. the genie in Aladdin, you can't do that character yeah. in, in 3D animation. Can you imagine what the rig would be like, how heavy that thing would be, so that it could transform itself into all these different things? You'd have to have so many different stunt versions of that character to, to create those things that he would create. But in 2D animation, you could just do it. He His face turns into Johnny Carson for a split second. Yeah. and then Or it's Jack Nicholson. Or he completely turns himself into a different shape. That all of those things, that now that was utilizing the strength of 2D animation. And then also using Al Hirschfeld lines uh, to, to create some of those you know, some of those designs. That's when animation is doing something that CG animation cannot do. That's when it's at its strength. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think that sadly, the 2D animation started to go into that, into that CG realm and CG could do it better. But I think that yeah. once uh, there, at some point there's going to be a project and somebody's going to figure out that, that they can create a 2D project that is unique and something that, that CG animation cannot do. And, and I think they're going to do well. Yeah. yeah. And that will be tapping all those, connecting all those dots of nostalgia and, and the beauty of, of that medium, right? Yeah. And it's funny because I've, I've talked to several kids and about my daughter's age. So I've got two girls between 22 and 17. And if whenever I talk to a group of, of enthusiasts, animation enthusiasts, they'll always go back like, well, what about 2D animation? They're always trying to say, it's like, well... I worked in 2D animation. Now I'm working in CG animation. If you guys want 2D animation, it's going to be up to you. It's your generation that's going to bring it back. Mm. You guys are the ones that have to create <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> like kind of like the uh, heritage of jazz music or something like an, an, an art form that people can, that survives forever because people always remember it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that that's, that's going to be them. They're going to be doing it. And, every, and you see little smatterings here and there of people still doing the you know playing and utilizing the strength of 2d animation and that's where you have mm. things like the song of the sea things like that where they're utilizing pattern uh flat graphic pattern and they're using design in a way that you can't use it's not as easy to do in uh, in cg animation or you wouldn't want to why would you want to make a 3d movie look 2d yeah and that's kind of what's going back to roger rabbit richard williams did some amazing scenes like where they're in the kitchen and 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 there's the floor and it's the checkers you know and Roger's yeah. flying around like that is not computer at all no he was he is that, a genius the human mind is yeah. capable of that yeah. so a lot of times you think like oh no 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 that that's that's impossible you can't do that but you realize when you see something like Milt Call when he's animating and, and he's doing Shere Khan and you look okay that guy mm -hmm. that came out of that guy's head there's not rotoscope. It came out of his head mm. and it went out through his hand. He put it on paper and it's amazing. 
And Richard Williams is another one of these guys. When you look at those scenes, that lets you know what the human mind is capable of. You can do that. You can draw that. It is possible. Yeah. And it's the craftsmen like you who are connecting those worlds and um, reminding us that there is a link between it all. And it, it's we kind of talked about this before we, before we started recording, but there is a divine inspiration to art too. There can be, right? Like this, the spiritual element to what you do, I imagine. You, you're a spiritual person, would you say? Oh my gosh, yeah. It's yeah. A, a really important component of, of who I am. And I think that there is a, there's a moral obligation um, to possessing this talent. You know, mm. you think of like in Spider-Man, you know, there's, you know, with, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. There's a great truth to that. And that if you've been blessed with this talent, that it's important to utilize it in a way that, that is responsible. Uh, and I, I believe that I have a responsibility to God. Uh, when you think of, uh, when I, when I look at the world, the world can be a very, it's a very dangerous place and it can be a very dark place. We have, we have this talent and we have an ability to create light and we have an opportunity with, with our talent to, to share happiness. And, and I, I thought about this and I, it's sort of complicated. Bear with me here. I was talking to this guy and he was a surgeon. He was a brain surgeon and he, he couldn't stop raving. He was an animation fan. He was talking about animation and this and that. And he wanted to know about this. And, <laughs> and so here we are. It's like a podcast. And we're like, yeah, yeah. So we sat there ch chatting with this fellow for a while. And he was like one of the premier brain surgeons in, uh, in the world at, at one particular point, but he was already older now and he had retired. And I, and I told him, I said, well, you know, what I do is kind of insignificant. I mean, I just, I just make cartoons. That's what I do. And he said, no, no. He says, you have the significant job. He says, I just save lives. You make life worth living. And, I, and it really kind of impacted me. And I started thinking about wow. more what he was saying. Because sometimes we have a tendency to devalue what we do. And it's like, yeah, I just, I just draw. I, just, I make cartoons. I make silly things. People laugh. They're amused. Yeah, but there is a greater responsibility to that. That when I think of, let's say, the, the darkest things out in the world, there's there's war, and there's um, uh, there's a lot of cruelty out there. How? What is the antithesis of that? So you think of like the the darkest forces out there. What what's the antithesis to that? Well, you could say that, well, we would have another army to fight this uh, other evil army and, mm. and that the two would battle each other. Yes, yes, a, a, as a physical thing, yes, that totally makes sense that you would have, let's say, um, a, an opposing force to, to hold that force. Yes, I, I completely respect and understand that. But it's not necessarily diametrically opposite. It's diametrically opposing, but it's not diametrically opposite. What is the opposite of darkness? Well, light, right? It is light. Yeah. And that's where art comes in. Yeah. We bring light into this world. We share happiness. We share mm. joy. We have the propensity to do that. So that's where I, I see my responsibility, that I have a responsibility to bring joy, to bring happiness, to bring light, and to combat those things that are dark in, mm. in this world. When I think there's a lot of really serious things, the world has a lot of really serious problems. And what stands diametrically opposed 
to those forces of darkness are those forces of light. And that comes from our, you know, from, from uh, artists, from talent of, uh, you know, somebody who paints a picture. And when you look at it, you know, you're, you're emotionally moved. When you listen to a beautiful piece of music and, you know, you, you well up with emotion. When you hear poetry and you just start crying, you know, that, that is the beauty that artists have that, that are bringing this into this world. And that's why it's so responsible. That's why I, I believe that we have such an important role. And I never really thought about it until I had that conversation with, of all people, a brain surgeon. Wow. And uh, an intelligent man. A very, oh, very intelligent. Man. <laughs> yeah. And he snapped me out of it because I, 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 I have to admit that I, I didn't really give what it is that I do that much value until that conversation with him. And Marcelo, it's interesting how the physics of, of cinema, it's light projected through, uh, through film or now digitally, right? Yeah. So it's, it's quite a, a literal point you made. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Yeah, it is. Um, you, you've been, how long have you been at Sony Animation? You know, I have been here, it'll be 16 years in just a few more weeks. Wow, a long 16 tenure. 16 years, yeah. Congrats. When, thank you. But when this studio was starting up, so at, uh, we have to go back 16 years ago, uh, Sony, or I'm sorry, Disney had, this is when they were going through all their growing pains and th this and that. They, they had bought up Pixar and they started to dismantle their studio, their animation studio. And that's where they started selling all their desks and all their equipment mm. and all of that stuff started going out and they cut their contracts. At the same time, Sony was trying to get into the world of CG animation and they wanted to create, uh, they wanted to bring on board people who were familiar making animation to help them make these CG movies. I thought like, well, if, if 2D animation is going to go away, I'm, I'm trying to read the tea leaves here. I thought yeah. if 2D animation is going to go away and this new thing is going to be CG animation, I better move back to LA and learn how they make these movies. And uh, I had two offers. One was from DreamWorks and one was from Sony. And I had a friend of mine that was working here, Richie Chavez, fantastic, amazing artist. And I thought, I want to work with him. And that's why I came here. Mm. What, what was your first project or some of your first projects? Uh, open came? season. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we started like very first project here at the studio. It was open season. I, I think I did, I did some designs for open season and I did some designs for Surf's Up. When I mm. first got here, it was like my first couple of weeks here, and I was already doing designs for both those projects. And both of those projects went into production here at Sony Pictures. It was the first and second picture. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So your INDB credits are, <laughs> there's a lot on there, huh? Yeah. Well, how many movies would you say, if you could ballpark, you've, you've worked on? And oh, my gosh. Here's the thing. For every project that I've worked on, there's probably another two more projects at least two or three more projects that did not get made. So when you think about it, you know, that you're, yeah, I would have to say probably it's a, it's a three or four to one ratio for projects. Okay. So they go into development and then they don't progress out of development. They just stay there and you move on to the next project and develop it. And then at a certain point, some of these grow legs and then you can actually take them all the way through mm. uh, to fruition. But, oh my gosh, I, I think I worked on, maybe eight projects, I think, over at the Disney, uh, eight films, feature films. And here at Sony, I've, I've worked on just about every single project with the exception of one. 
I think. I've, I've done, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I've, I've had a little piece of something. And you're one of the, must be one of the veteran uh, animators here, right? I, yes, yeah. you had to bring that up. <laughs> so I was like, well, you look very old, Marcelo. <laughs> no, definitely not. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. you know, and yeah. uh, it, it's an interesting thing because I, I remember being sort of frustrated. I thought like, well, here I, I get into animation and the whole bottom falls out of the market and animation is going away, you know, mm. and here they're going into the CG animated m movies and I don't know how to make those. And, and there's a, there was a bit of frustration there for me, but I came here, learned how to make the movies, and, uh, and I realized how, number one, how similar that process is. So it, it, it hasn't really changed all that much for me because doing design and doing um, uh, design for entertainment is gonna be more or less the same. There's some of the, some things have changed, you know, the way, the way you design characters. Um, uh, certainly has changed, like in just a technical aspect. But uh, but yeah, I, I think that when when you look at the the that evolutionary process of uh, as it went from two D animation into CG animation, that uh, I I realize that I'm one of the few people that actually had their foot in in both industries yeah that i actually and there are there are very very few people that have worked that are working today in this industry that actually worked in 2d and now work in cg animation very well, few wow and you spoke earlier we talked about mentors i'm sure you've you have some mentees in in, in yeah industry, and, huh? and that was it is like yeah. when i think about my my role in the industry and i've always wanted to have this mentor mentee relationship and i and i've had pieces of that but i never really had a you know full you know connection with the in in the way that i sort of expected that it would unfold but that doesn't mean that doesn't exist mm -hmm. i realized that in in a mentor mentee relationship that you ex you have two ways that you can experience it you can experience it as the mentor or you can experience it as the mentee. Now, I thought that I was going to get it as the mentee, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that I still can't have that same relationship as the mentor. And yeah. so I try to be very open with what I know. I try to be very giving of what I know. Here, here's the thing. And one of these realizations happened to me when I was uh, going to art school and we were learning about J.C. Leyendecker for you know those uh, you know, your fans that are, are unfamiliar with the name. Look it up, J.C. Leyendecker. Fantastic artwork. I love this guy's work. And then I found out that towards the end of his, oh, and he was very secretive about how he worked. I wanted to know, oh, what was his technique? How did he work? And his, mm. well, never shared that with anybody. And he took that to the grave with him. The only person he shared it with was Norman Rockwell. And he had Norman Rockwell promise that he would never share it with anyone. So Norman Rockwell kept his promise. And J.C. Leyendecker took that technique to the grave with him. Mm. And I think that's a tremendous travesty. Now I understand how important that was for him to protect his livelihood because that was his look. But when he left, he took that with him. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to, cause I think it's, it's a loss is there, you know, you figure things out, that's a gift. And I want to give that to somebody else and take, give the next generation, let them take it and run with it and evolve it. Yeah. And, and, it, and so that it, it stays alive and it's sort of like, we, in this life, we have an ability to create energy. 
and it, even in this conversation that we're having, I, I'm creating energy in, in my dialogue and I put that out into the world. And that energy continues to, to um, you know, to run it. Every time somebody hears this interview, they hear this energy that's going out to them and it, and it carries in words and it carries in thought. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and perhaps they could find purpose in that. And then in that purpose, they carry now that energy. And so it's, there's a kinetic line of, of energy. Mm. But for him, he inspired so many people with his work and he allowed that to dissipate. And I think that that's a, that's a travesty. And I remember how heartbroken I was. Mm. And I don't want to be that guy. I don't, want, I don't want what it is that I know to die with me. I want to be able to say, you know what? I was part of a process of... Uh, a, a chain in that energy and that uh, the energy that was given to me by that guy that was doing all those drawings on that ship. You know, I carry that with me and I ball up all that energy. And, and then the doctor that I talked to and then my mom with the crayons and all of that energy and I'm passing it to somebody else. Mm. And that somebody has that energy and they're going to do something amazing with it as well. And I, and I hope to be part of that process, part of that chain. That's beautiful, man. And, and, and animation being energy and giving life to something inanimate, right? Yeah. A series of, that's yeah. your craft, that's your trade, what, yeah. what, what you do aesthetically. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because those pictures have a life. Yeah, they, they do. really do. Because you think about it, like let's say our, our, our latest movie uh, that we did here at Sony, which is, you know, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. That character does not exist. Mm. Not really. There's no real Miles Morales. There, and it's not, we don't even have an actor that that is that that character no we have a voice actor so he's a part of miles then there's the cg model that was modeled by somebody else and mm. that's part of the character so, but and, and then there's the story and but everything we put all of that together then we're we're creating we're giving life to this this thing that doesn't necessarily exist but it exists in our idea of it and that's a that's a great thing i love that i love that we can create that and tell stories and inspire people and what you said earlier, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. To, to, and I like, you posted, um, you did the comic book cover as a tribute to the original yes. uh, Amazing Spider-Man debut, right? Yes. That, yeah. that, that's like a, getting to do purposeful homages and twists. I was just wondering, you finding personal satisfaction in your work, do you feel like you get to do that every day? Put a little st Marcelo stamp on there? I, I don't look for that. Yeah. The Marcelo stamp hopefully is the joy that I put into something. Okay. And I really try to give myself over to whatever it is that I'm working on. I try to, to uh, and I, I really sense it. If I, if I don't completely surrender to that moment and create something that is genuine and authentic, I, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like I wouldn't, I'm not really doing my job. So I really try to, focus and pour myself into that. And hopefully that's my signature. But every now and then we get an opportunity <laughs> where the, uh, I, I had done the drawing of the director, or I, no, I, when I had done that, uh, the, the villain had a beanie, it was sort of a hipster kind of guy and had a beanie. And yeah. the director, uh, Bob Perchetti, comes in and to, to review the, the drawing. And he looks and he's got a beanie. And so they started ribbing him, ah, that looks like you. And I said, well, I, I can make it look like him. And so we all laughed. And sure enough, like a, a week later or so, I had that cover and it looked just like Bob Perchetti. <laughs> and a little Easter yeah. egg. And it's yeah. an Easter egg, yeah. yeah. So when you think about it, it looks just like the cover, that the original cover that was done way back in like, what, 1962 when Spider-Man came out. 
but the different, and so this, but it's an alternate universe version of it. So it can't be identical. It wasn't mm. like I just Photoshopped some things. No, it's a completely all new drawing, all drawn in my style. And, but my way of drawing it, but it harkens back to the 1960s and it has Bob Perchetti, our director, being sort of swept away by Spider-Man. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a craft to be able to distill something to its essence and make it new. Like one of my favorite pieces of all the, of the Roger Rabbit history is that drawing you have of Roger spinning and Benny with the dip around him. Yeah. And it's like being able to, to do different styles. That's cool. Like as a, as a craft... I, I've never talked to anyone who's been able to or met anyone who has that talent. So it's it's been really cool meeting you and talking about this. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and that's one of those things that in, in creating this, you know, being so diverse in in what I do, I I really take a lot of joy in that. And that part and that comes from immersing myself. I have to really immerse myself into what I'm working on and and be faithful to what it is I'm working on. So if, if I'm working on Roger Rabbit, I'm faithful to that world. If I'm working on Spider-Man, I'm faithful to that world. Mm. And so that I, I feel like I can give them the best of my honesty. And, and in creating that, if, when audiences look at it, they can sense that. And they can say, yes, that, that looks honest. It doesn't look like, you know, it, it, that something that doesn't connect with the material. It looks part of the quote unquote canon, right? Yeah, yeah. and that's and that's the greatest joy that I have is yeah. to be part of that. And then again, it goes back to that energy. And now I'm part of that energy. Well, I'm sure this this conversation probably inspired a lot of um, young artists and creators. And Marcelo, as we wrap up, is there any wisdom or pearls of of knowledge or something that maybe you had wanted to hear early in your career that we could pass on to some of our podcast listeners that? might help them or inspire them. Yeah, you know, I think, I, I, I do. And, and this may be a, sort of a, a, a bitter pill for some, actually. You know, it might, might be some strong coffee. But this stuff is hard. And, and I think sometimes people get into it and, and they, they have an idea that it's going to be relatively easy. No, it's hard. It's hard stuff. And if it wasn't hard, there'd be a lot more people doing it. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's so if you want to work in this business and you great you derive great joy from doing this, and it's hard. Understand that that it's supposed to be hard. Don't think like, oh gosh, it I think it's harder for me than it is for Marcelo. Or Marcelo just makes it look easy. Oh, it must have been easy for him. No, it was very hard for me. It was very hard working. There's a lot of late nights, a lot of studying, a lot of training that went into it. I was, when I was working at, at Disney, I was working already as a professional at Disney doing my work. And I was going to three life drawing workshops a week and painting the figure on the weekends on top of doing all my work that I was doing for mm. Disney. So you figure, well, he's already working as a professional at Disney. What does he need to keep training for? No, that was me, and I kept training, I kept working, I kept studying. So uh, if there are people out there and they, they would love to do what it is that I'm doing, understand that it is hard. And so if you're at school and, you're, and you feel like you're, you're at your wit's end and you feel that, oh my gosh, you know, I, I don't know that I'm cut out for it, tough it out, tough it out, just do the work, do, do what you have to do. It is hard. It's sort of like um, uh, bodybuilding. 
Mm. You know, and and somebody says, "Wow, these weights are heavy." <laughs> yes, <laughs> they're supposed to be heavy. If they were light, you wouldn't be building muscle. Right. So it's supposed to be hard. So uh, if if people have an understanding that when they go, go into uh, art and animation, if they love it, it won't be hard. Mm. That doesn't mean it's not going to be uh, th- that they're not going to have to work hard. They're going to have to work very hard. But it, it's not going to be a chore. It's not going to be painful to work on because it's what you want to do. But, uh, but yeah, I think that, uh, and hopefully that gives a sense of, of perspective for people so that they don't, they don't get the false impression that this is easy. And at the first, and, and let's say they've got a lot of talent, but the first time they meet adversity, they stop. I, I don't want them to stop. I right. want them to think like, no, it's supposed to be like this. I have to just go, I have to work through this this period or I have to work through this phase or I have to learn how to do this. So the idea of having faith that there's a reason for doing it and faith in oneself and faith in something bigger, those are all very important things. If huh? you believe in the goal and you know that this is your industry, this is what you want to do, then go out and get it. Yeah. Then go, it's there. And, and it's funny because a lot of times other people talk their themselves out of things and they say, and, oh no, you know, well, that stuff's happening in, in you know, California. Uh, there's no way that I could get to California. Look, I, I grew up in Maryland. I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. I, I, I didn't, my dad was a bricklayer and my mom worked as a seamstress and uh, a uh, factory worker as well. I had no connection to the art world. And, and in Baltimore, I had no connection to animation or film or anything like that. And here I am. Hmm. So those things are possible. They, and and I, I always tell people when I have uh, talks to young people, I tell them, look, somebody's got to do the work. Why not you? Why can't it be you? Yeah. If you believe in yourself, go out and get that dream. Mm. It's there. It's waiting for you. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> That's such a great, <laughs> a great, beautiful note to end on, man. And um. I really like, I appreciate that. I appreciate hearing that personally. You know what I mean? Like that inspires me. And I also appreciate how you were kind enough to uh, let me come speak with you and, and talk about this stuff. And where do you recommend people check you out? You have a website with your work, right? I I have a website. It's Vignali Studio. Uh, Everything is more or less a Vignali Studio. So if you go to my Instagram, it's Vignali Studio. If you go to Facebook, uh, again, Vignali Studio. But you can also look me up as Marcelo Vignali on social media. Um, yeah, so I have got a website. I post some things on Facebook. I have an Instagram account, so you can follow. And I also have a Twitter account. And I, I don't know that I use my Twitter as a lot of people use their Twitter, but because uh, a lot of people are very, very good at social media, and, and this is still sort of something foreign to me. But I, if, if there's something worthwhile, I try to put it out there. And you are in the Roger Rabbit um, Facebook group. You've, you've answered questions about yeah. your work connected to it. And that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. If there's some questions and people put it out there and, and I see it, yeah, I, I'll try to answer. Well, thank you, man. I really enjoyed this conversation. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure meeting you, Andrew. Hop in, I'm Benny the Cap. Just stick out your thumb and you'll be there in a flash. Hop in, I'm Benny the Cap. When you see me on the sidewalk, get out the way fast. Hop in, I'm Benny the Cap. And when it comes to the Dodgers, no, I'm not a fan. 
Hop in, I'm Benny the Cab. Take the bunny and run. ADV, that's the plan. First I moved to LA from New York like sorry. Revving up my engine, gas like a Ferrari. Are we ready for the ride of our lives? Cause I'm gone. And it's rough in these streets. Strap in and hold on. Been driving pools around since 1910. Sister Mary Francis, he's done it again. Roger, why'd you have to tip off the Tomb Patrol? To the movies we will go, but keep it on the low. I know Goofy's funny, but you gotta be quiet. Cause rabbit's on the menu and Doom's not on a diet. With a pack of hungry weasels, evil and starving. I'm sliding through the dip and it's kind of alarming. So don't freeze the frame. I mean it. Turpentine, acetone, and benzene, we've seen Let's it. Let's go back to the part where I'm saving the day. Yo, Roger, let me drive. Get out of the way. Hop in, I'm Benny the Cab. Just stick out your thumb and you'll be there in a flash. Hop in, I'm Benny the Cab. When you see me on the sidewalk, get out the way fast. Hop in, I'm Benny the Cab. And when it comes to the Dodgers, no, I'm not a fan. Hop in, I'm Benny the Cab. Take the bunny and run. ADV, that's the plan. Okay, now crawl through the window. Roger, I'll get help. Save Jessica and Eddie, and yes, save yourself. Fight Greasy and Wheezy and the rest of the vermin. Smoking hella henchmen like your name was Baby Herman. With the stogie hold up, G, what about the will? Roger's been a patsy ever since Acme was killed. And I don't appreciate it. Help us out, Santino. Deciphering the fallout from Jessica's libido. But she's not bad. That's just how she's drawn. Well, Betty boops from serving drinks from sunset till dawn. No justice for tunes? Try that one again. Looks like we found the culprit and saved all our friends. These days you might find me on House of Mouse. Hanging out with Max and Mickey on location, no doubt. It's been a crazy ride for the first self-driving car. Middle finger to your Uber, you can keep your five stars. Oh! Hop in, I'm Benny the Cab. Just stick out your thumb and you'll be there in a flash. Hop in, I'm Benny the Cab. When you see me on the sidewalk, get out the way fast. Hop in, I'm Benny the Cab. And when it comes to the Dodgers, no, I'm not a fan. Hop in, I'm Benny the Cab. Take the bunny and run. ADV, that's the plan. Why'd you lock me up for driving on the sidewalk? It was just a couple miles and nobody got hurt. Why'd you lock me up for driving on the sidewalk? It was just a couple miles and nobody got hurt. Why'd you lock me up for driving on the sidewalk? It was just a couple miles and nobody got hurt. Why'd you lock me up for driving on the sidewalk? It was just a couple miles and nobody got hurt. Yo, that was awesome. Thank you, Marcelo. Thank you all for listening. Next week, we got D-Lyrical. And some of you might know, on YouTube, I was doing a Hatchet Chat series of all the ICP records in order, reviewing them. And I might pick that up again. It's kind of on hiatus. I was working on an ICP book project. But despite all that, D-Lyrical recorded Violent J's first demo. They worked on it together back back in the day in Detroit. It was like Violent J's first release was doing this EP with D-Lyrical. So that's next week. I interviewed him and he came up to uh, Cleveland when I was on tour with I Fight Dragons and we we uh, we recorded the interview in the meeting room at the library across the street from the venue, which was freaking awesome. D-Lyrical is the man and he, uh, yeah, he's not bitter about the fact that like he helped launch ICP and then he became an engineer. He still puts out music, humble guy, talented guy, sweetheart. So check that out. Uh, you can listen to the podcast as you are listening to it. So I don't need to plug where you can listen to it, listen to it because you found where it is. But please leave a comment. Please leave a review. Please tell your friends. And until next week, thank you for listening. I'm MC Lars. Have a great week. Peace.